Good morning. Welcome to Bethel Baptist. Good to see you all this morning. So our scripture passage for, the, for today is Genesis 13. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 18. And it can be found, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the Pew Bible on page 9. So if you would please open to Genesis 13. And uh, as you are able, if you could please stand for the reading of God's Word. <coughs> Excuse me. So Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen's, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. Please be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Morning, Bethel. It's good to see you all as we've come to worship the Lord today. Uh, as uh, Greg mentioned, Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. The video we watched from the Voice of the Martyrs focused on the persecution of Christians in Pakistan. Uh, let me read again the statement that appeared there at the beginning. 
Today in Pakistan, some Christians are beaten, imprisoned, and even killed for their faith in Christ. And under Islamic rule, rural Christians are second-class citizens forced to serve Muslims in humility. These are your Pakistani Christian family members. One such Pakistani Christian family member is a woman named Asia Bibi. Her name may, may sound familiar to you. She's been in the news now for several years. Back in 2009, Asia was working with a few Muslim women in the fields, and she offered water to the group, so the story goes. Uh, the other women, though, refused to drink it because Asia, as a Christian, had contaminated the water by touching the container that it was in. This apparently led to an argument of some kind, and Asia was accused of blasphemous remarks against the prophet Muhammad, a charge that she continues to deny. So that was back in 2009. Fast forward to 2010, and Asia was not just accused of blasphemy, but she was convicted for it and sentenced to die by hanging. That was eight years ago. This woman has been in jail on death row for eight years because she, a Christian, was unjustly accused of committing blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad. Since that time, her case has gradually made its way to the Supreme Court of Pakistan, and just this past Wednesday, the court ruled in her favor and ordered her release. It's, it's really good news. It should be celebrated. But while it is good news, yeah. But while it is good news, Asia still remains in custody today. She remains in custody because after her acquittal, radical Islamists protested in Pakistan, calling for her to be publicly hanged, and filed a petition for the Supreme Court to reverse its decision. Unfortunately, the Pakistani government, they signed a pact with the leaders of that protest, uh, agreeing that it wouldn't oppose the petition. And further, it stated its intention to put Asia on the exit control list, which basically means that if it goes through, she won't be allowed to leave the country. And as far as I know, that's where things are this morning. So she has been acquitted, yet not released, and time will tell what happens to her, even whether she lives or whether she dies. So what is it that enables Christians in these kind of conditions to persevere? How do Christians like Asia Bibi and the three men from that video we watched, John, Samuel, and Paul, how do they continue following Jesus? There are a number of ways we could answer that question, I think, but a good response comes from the video itself that we just watched. Listen again to what was said. Today in Pakistan, we Christians are second-class citizens. Though we have committed no crime, we are ostracized and banished to the lowest place in society. Often we are forced to leave our villages and our own homes. We cannot get good jobs, and we have no voice in government. 
What is left for us is servitude, sewage work, and we know we will never advance. But we have a church, a place where Christians come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to sing his praise, to study his word, and catch this, for while our country has turned its back on us, God has not. So after Asia Bibi's acquittal, a Christian Pakistani mother voiced a conviction that's similar to what we heard in that video. So as she waited for her child to come home from school, she described what she was feeling this way. Joy, anger, fear, disbelief, fear again, rejoicing, trusting, fear, questions, surrendering. God is in control. Surely we will overcome. These men and women are walking by faith. They are trusting the Lord in the midst of persecution, believing that God is with them, that while their country has turned its back on them, God has not, and that even while their children are at risk, God is in control. Surely we will overcome. How do they know this to be true? Because God, who gave them faith and saved them from their sin, said so. And his word is as good as done. So maybe they're thinking of a text like Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Maybe they're thinking of Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are promises from our God that you can take to the bank. Now, we don't know for sure what passages our Pakistani brothers and sisters have in mind, but what does seem to be the case is that the Lord is sustaining them in their faith. And as they demonstrate, when you trust God or when you take him at his word, you are enabled to walk in obedience to him in every circumstance. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis and looking at chapter 13. And as we do so, we're going to see this played out in the life of Abram. So far in Genesis, Abram has demonstrated both great faith in God and great unbelief. 
He is a sinner in need of grace, just like you and me, just like our brothers and sisters in Pakistan. But in this chapter, in chapter 13, like these faithful Christians in Pakistan, he provides for us an example of what it looks like to walk by faith. And he does so in at least three ways. One, he calls upon the name of the Lord in worship and renewal. Two, he displays faith and its fruit in the midst of a tense situation with his nephew Lot. And three, he receives a promise from, from the Lord, and again, he's going to respond in worship. So let's look at those three things in turn. So our first point, worship and renewal. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 9. It says, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb, which that's the southern region of the land of Canaan. Verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So let's take a minute to remind ourselves how Abraham gets to this place, how we get to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So we're first introduced to Abram in Genesis 11. So there Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us a bit about his family. Abraham's father is Terah. His nephew, whose father passed away, is Lot. And his wife, who is barren and without child, is Sarai. So Ter Terah takes Abram, Lot, and Sarai from Ur of the Chaldeans, and his intention is to go to Canaan, but he doesn't quite make it, and he settles instead in a land called Haran. Now, there's no mention of this in Genesis 11, but in Joshua 24.2, Joshua tells the elders, heads, judges, and officers of Israel that their fathers, including Terah, served other gods. So Abram was part of a family of idol worshipers. He wasn't a follower of the one true God, but that did not stop God from intervening in Abram's life. We saw that two weeks ago when Pastor Chris preached on the end of chapter 11 and the first portion of chapter 12. So in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God calls Abram to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house and go to the land he would show him. And he gives him a promise. Look at Genesis 12, 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So for Abram, leaving country and, kin and kindred would have been difficult. It would have been risky to leave his family. But Abraham obeys the Lord in faith. He and Lot and Sarai take their possessions and the people they acquired in Hanan, the text tells us, and they go to the land of Canaan. And there at Shechem, the Lord appears to Abram, and he says in chapter 12, verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. So the Lord promises Abram that he would give the land to his offspring, the land of Canaan. So then Abram moves to the hill country that's in between Bethel and Ai, and there he builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. So we run through all of that to remind ourselves of the promises that God made to Abram and also to see that up to this point, 
Abraham has demonstrated great faith in God and his promises. He hears from the Lord, and in faith, he does what the Lord says, even when it's risky to him. But if you were here last week, you know that's not the end of the story with Abram. In Genesis 12.10, a famine strikes in Canaan, and Abram leaves the land, and he sojourns in Egypt. But before entering Egypt, he has a conversation with his wife, with Sarai. He's worried that when the Egyptians see her, that when they see that she's beautiful, they'll kill him and take her for themselves. So he devises a plot. He tells Sarai to tell the Egyptians that she's his half-sister, which is half-true. Sarai and Abram did share the same father, but not the same mother, which wouldn't have been as weird back then as it is to us now. But while this is a half-truth, Abraham's intention, well, it's to deceive. So he is afraid. And instead of trusting the Lord to come through and deliver for him, instead of putting himself at risk for the sake of his wife, he asks her to tell a deceptive half-truth. She goes along with his plan, and in that sense, it actually works. Pharaoh takes Sarai into his house as his wife, and he gives Abram numerous possessions. So thankfully, God again intervenes in Abram's life, and he afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Pharaoh chastises Abraham for deceiving him, and he essentially kicks Abraham and his family out of Egypt, allowing them to take all their possessions. So we run through that to remind ourselves of Abraham's unbelief. So, so far, we've seen a man of great faith. We've seen a man of great unbelief. And so, the question is, what is Abram, Abram going to do now? How will he move forward after what happened in Egypt from such gross unbelief and sin? I mean, let's try to put ourselves into this situation when we get to chapter 13. Remember what's happened. A man of great faith, Yet a man, when trial came, when he, when he went into Egypt to escape famine in Canaan, he devised this plan that put his wife at risk. How do you move on from that? Verses 3 to 4 of chapter 13 give us the answer. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So do you remember chapter 12, verse 8? So Abram moves into the hill country between Bethel and Ai, and there he builds an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. So what is he doing here? He's going back. I think what's happening is that Abram is intentionally returning to the place where he previously built an altar and worshiped God. This is on purpose. And keep in mind, this is something that the text never says that he did while he was in Egypt. No altars in Egypt. No worshiping the Lord in Egypt. Now, after God has delivered him, what is he doing? 
He's going right back to the place where he built an altar and worshiped. This is a sign, I think, of repentance, of personal renewal, perhaps even of gratitude and thankfulness on Abram's part. He absolutely blew it in Egypt. But rather than wallowing in self-pity and beating himself up, he returns to the Lord and worships him. Where else would he go? What else would he do? God graciously called him out of Haran and made him a great purpose, and he obediently followed in faith. Yes, he royally screwed up, but that did not mean that God stopped loving him. That did not make God's promises null and void. That did not mean that God abandoned him. That did not mean that God gave up on him. In fact, while Abram's faith has come and gone, what has stayed consistent is the faithfulness of God. God led Abram into the promised land, and God rescued Abram out of Egypt. I mean, think about that. The situation in Egypt in uh, verses 10 to 20 of chapter 12, what does Abram do to get himself out of that mess? Nothing. Abram doesn't do anything. God unilaterally rescues him and his family out of that situation. And not only does God rescue him, don't miss the fact that God actually enables Abram to, uh, to plunder the Egyptians. While he's there, remember that Pharaoh gave him possessions. And when Abram leaves, what does he leave with? Verse 1 of chapter 13, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He had wealth before, but he gained additional wealth in Egypt. God has been so abundantly gracious to this man of fickle faith. And when this man blows it in Egypt, what does he do? He goes back to the Lord in worship. I think that this is instructive for us. If you are a Christian here this morning, God has unilaterally saved you from your sin by grace through faith in Jesus. As it's been said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. God did it. God gave you faith. God raised you from the dead and gave you new life in Jesus. When we were dead in our sin, God made us alive together with Christ. So our response to that, like Abram, should be gratitude. It should be thankfulness. We need to praise the Lord for what he has done for us, for the great salvation that he has worked out for us. But that should also, this should also be instructive for us when we sin. We still struggle with sin, don't we? All of us. I feel it. I know that if you're a Christian, you feel it too. We know what we want to be. We know what we will be in Christ. But we also are aware of what we are not yet. So the question for us this morning is, what do we do when we blow it? What do we do when we fail? What do you do after you've committed that sin again? What do you do after again you have disappointed yourself, your spouse, 
your kids, your friends, your coworkers, whomever, most importantly, after you've sinned against God, where do you go? We need to follow the path that Abraham trods here. We need to run to the Lord, and we need to remind ourselves of his promises to us and accept them by faith. Do you know what the Lord has promised to you if you are a Christian? Do you know what he's done for you? Do you remind yourself of it? Colossians 2, 13 to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has dealt with your sin. It is done. It has been paid for. We have stored up a gigantic cup of wrath against ourselves that we deserve to drink, but Jesus took that cup, and he drank it for us all the way to the very bottom. There's nothing left. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Like, we believe that as Christians, but I'm talking tomorrow morning when you wake up and you are reminded of your sin, do you believe that? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you believe 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that a truth that you lay hold of every day? We need God to be gracious to us, to give us faith, to accept these promises as believers. We need each other. We need to be each other. We need to be in each other's lives reminding one another of Colossians 2, of Romans 8, of 1 John 1, 9. We are much more like Abram than sometimes we may care to admit. Yes, we have faith, but we can be fickle in that faith. So we need to be reminded of what's true. We need to run to God in worship, especially when we fail. He is ready and willing to forgive us. If you're here this morning and if you aren't a Christian, guess what? The character of God that we've just been talking about remains true. So if you aren't trusting in Jesus for your salvation, that means that God is ready and willing to forgive you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The only thing that God asks from you is nothing. You can't contribute anything to your salvation. So if you aren't trusting in Jesus this morning, the invitation for you is to go to God with empty hands, to confess your sin and your need, and trust Jesus to save you. And guess what? He will. This is his promise, his guarantee for us, his guarantee for you this morning. So run to him. Run to him with repentant faith. So... Abram calls upon the name of the Lord in worship and renewal. And he also, and this is our second point, he demonstrates faith and its fruit. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. 
For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abram renews his faith and worships the Lord, and afterward, another test emerges. So testing isn't new for Abram. Remember that God asked him to leave Haran, to leave his family, the land of his father, and he responded in faith and went into the land of Canaan. Likewise, when famine struck in Canaan, he went to Egypt. A test emerged there, but there he responded in unbelief. So now, again in Canaan, in the land God promised him, this new test comes about. The land, again, lets him down. The land that previously experienced famine now can't support both he and Lot, and strife emerges between their herdsmen. This is an important moment for him. How will he respond to this new predicament? Will he trust the Lord like he did at first? Or will he, or will he again take matters into his own hands in unbelief? Verses 8 and 9 give us the answer. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abram shows great faith here. Do you see it? In terms of the family makeup, Abram's Lot's uncle. He has the right to choose what land he wants. Further and most importantly, God made the promise of land to Abram's offspring, not Lot's. Abram doesn't choose for himself. Instead, out of love for his kinsmen, not wanting any strife to exist between he and Lot or their herdsmen, he gives Lot the first choice of the land and agrees to go in the opposite direction of whatever Lot chooses. That is so different from the Abram we encountered at the end of Genesis 12. There, he didn't trust the Lord to care for him. Now, he trusts God to provide for him regardless of what Lot chooses. There, in Genesis 12, he chose to preserve himself over his wife. Now, he puts Lot's interests ahead of his. What, what's the difference? Like, what happened? What changed for him? I think the answer is verses 1 to 4 of chapter 13. Abram turned in faith to God and worshiped him. He turned away from unbelief and turned back to the Lord in faith. And do you see the result? His faith enables him here to play the role of peacemaker. He is able to resolve this dispute because he knows that God is not going to abandon him. Because he knows that God cares for him. Because he knows that God did not give up on him even when he blew it in Egypt. That's what authentic faith looks like. There's a quote from a guy named Art Azurdia. Uh, I came across this. It's actually in an album called Worthy by a group um, uh, named Beautiful Eulogy. So they have a song on that album where uh, the, that track is Art Azurdia speaking. Um, and he says this about faith. What is authentic faith? the cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it, 
a holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. We should see there, by the way, an echo of Hebrews 11.1. 1. He continues, faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It is not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and his promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. That is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God. It is believing God taking God at his word, living in obedience to his revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what he says, that his speaking is his doing. The believers that we uh, heard about earlier in Pakistan are living that out. Abraham in Genesis 13, I think, is living that out. He's showing us authentic faith. He's walking by faith. This is positive certainty expressed in action. It's taking God at his word and living in obedience to it regardless of the cost because you know that God will always, always, always do what he says. We need that kind of faith, don't we? We need to trust God and take him at his word. When we do that, that enables us to follow in the footsteps of Abram here. Think about that. Apply that just to a few types of situations we face in our life. Think about strife. We can be peacemakers. We can make peace because Jesus has made peace with us. So Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder then that in that same letter, in Romans 12, 8, Paul can say, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When we really lay hold of the fact that Jesus has brought us to a place of peace with God, that enables us to be at peace with other people. How about Matthew 5, 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For they shall be called sons of God. What happens to you when you lay hold of that promise in faith? You become a peacemaker. How about Philippians 2? Starting in verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So how do we do that? What is the power to live that way? How do we not only seek to make peace when there's strife, but how do we live in humility, looking out for the interest of others above our own? Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So where do we get the power to live peaceably with all? Where do we get the power to count others as more significant than ourselves? By looking to Jesus, by trusting in the promises that God has made to us. Apply it to another area that we see from Abram here in this chapter, generosity. What empowers generosity? What enables us to live in that manner? In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, encouraging his audience to love and sacrificially give, says in verse 9 of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Where's the power to live and give generously? It is in reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Though he was rich, yet for me, for us, for you, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Apply it to love. Where do we get the power to love? 1 John 4, 9 says, We love, why? Because he first loved us. So when we know this, when we believe this, when we take God at his word and treasure his promises, we are able to love, we are able to live generously, we are able to sacrifice for one another, we are able to make peace when there is strife and on and on and on we could go. Believing God, taking him at his word changes everything about how we live our lives day to day. So we need to lay hold of those promises. We need to follow the footsteps that Abraham walks in Genesis 13. But we also need to heed the warning, I think, that's here. So Abraham's not the only character in this chapter. We need to look at Lot as well. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. The text says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So on the one hand, it makes sense that Lot would choose the Jordan Valley, right? He recently experienced famine. And the Jordan Valley was well-watered. It's well-watered, in fact, like the Garden of Eden and like the land of Egypt. Plus, Abraham did give him first dibs. Like, it's only natural. Uh, it's only common sense, right, to, to make the best selection of the land. But, on the other hand, I think there are a few things in these verses that show us that Lot's heart perhaps wasn't in the right place. So the language that Moses uses here to describe Lot resembles a couple of other narratives in the book of Genesis that we've read so far. In the Garden of Eden, 
when Eve is tempted by the serpent to disobey God, recall what the text says. This is verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And as a consequence of their rebellion, what did the Lord do? Chapter 3, verse 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Eve sees that the tree is good for food. It's a delight to her eyes. It's desired to make her wise. And so she sins against God. Adam does too. And as a result, God drives them out of the garden. They go eastward. What's happening with Lot? He lifts up his eyes. He sees that the Jordan Valley was well watered. And he chooses for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he journeys east. In Genesis 6, similarly, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. This kind of language is used to describe sin. It's used to describe selfishness and unbelief. So like Eve and the sons of God, Lot lifts up his eyes, he sees, he chooses for himself, and he journeys east. And furthermore, he seems to leave the promised land, and he dwells in an area where great sinners live. Look, at, look again at uh, verse 11. It says, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Seems to be a difference in the land of Canaan and where Lot went. And then verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So the evidence, it seems, points to Lot being motivated by perhaps unbelief and selfishness here in this text. But in Abram, we get the opposite example a man who seems to be driven by faith in God, trust in his promise, which leads to love for his kindred and sacrifice and generosity. Abraham experienced famine too. Lot was his nephew. He was the one that God promised the land to. He could have chosen the better portion, but he sacrificially deferred. And what enabled him to do that? his trust in the Lord and his promise, his love for his family, his faith. So, again, we need Bethel to be intentional, to take God at his word, to trust him, to believe what Jesus has accomplished for us, what he says about us, and what he is doing and will do for us ultimately. We need, like Abram, to walk by faith. And then our last point, promise and worship. Look with me at verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. 
For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So Abram separates from Lot, and then God makes him a great promise. This is not only a reaffirmation of the promises in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 and 7, but it's an expansion, a deepening of them. So this land in chapter 12, verse 7, becomes all the land that you see in chapter 13, verse 15. To your offspring in chapter 12, verse 7, becomes to you and to your offspring forever in chapter 13, verse 15. I will make of you a great nation in chapter 12, verse 2, becomes I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth in chapter 13, verse 16. So God dishes out lavish promises to Abram here, but he's not done. He even invites Abram. He tells him to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, inviting him to take in with his senses what will one day be his because God says, I will give it to you, and his promises are as good as done. So in response to all of this, Abram moved his tent. He came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This chapter begins and ends with worship, as it should. God rescued Abram and his family from Egypt in spite of Abram's unbelief, God's made rich promises to him, which he's accepted in faith. And he has responded here with worship. And we should as well, because we've experienced great deliverance at the hands of our God through Christ. So it's no wonder that Abram shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the great chapter of faith. In verses 8 to 10 of that chapter, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews eleven six. without faith is it, in, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abraham is a living example of this kind of faith, and we through Christ need to follow in those footsteps. But before we close, One additional word. I realize that that may sound, that this may sound heavy to you this morning. And I don't don't want this message to come across as simply pull yourself up by your bootstraps and have faith. Like, just do it. Get it done. Go out tomorrow and trust God. We should do that. We should go out and trust God. We need to be resting in what God has done for us. We need to put our faith in what Christ has done. We need to shy away from the pull ourselves up by our bootstraps mentality 
and rest in Jesus. And as we look to Christ, allow what he has done, what he promises to us, to motivate our obedience. So it's not simply obey. It is trust and obey. And it's important to get that right. In an article titled The Gospel of Genesis 13, Jared Wilson, he touches on this in part. He says, Abraham looks great right here, chapter 13, but we're only three chapters away from his trying to manipulate the situation and control the covenant with his own scheming all over again. And then he goes on to point out how you and I are like this too, fickle in our faith. He says, we are sinner saints. So some days were the Abram of Genesis 13, but most days were the Abram of Genesis 12. So that being the case, how do you put one foot in front of the other and walk by faith? Wilson points the way forward. He says, and now we see just how much we need Jesus. We need the Jesus who loves us in our Genesis 13 moments and our Genesis 12 moments. We need the Jesus whose favor rests on us purely by the grace of his Father and by the power of his Spirit, not because of anything we've done or not done, purely by his sovereign pleasure. We need the Jesus who can sort through our mixed motives, who can heal our deepest wounds, who can free us from our strongest prisons, who can rescue us from our deepest graves, the ones we dig ourselves. Only Jesus has truly given up everything in order to gain everything. Only Jesus has truly emptied himself, and in his emptying comes his exalting, in his emptying and exalting comes our own. That is good news that we need to lay hold of by faith. When we look to Jesus, when we trust him, God gives us power and strength to obey in the present. 